Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Anne of Green Gables, the third book in our series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Now, Marilyn will bring the characters to life in this dramatic reading exclusively from the Zoomer Podcast Network. Without further ado, here is Marilyn Lightstone to read us Anne of Green Gables. Chapter 31 Where the Brook and River Meet Anne had her good summer and enjoyed it wholeheartedly. She and Diana fairly lived outdoors, reveling in all the delights that Lover's Lane and the Dryad's Bubble and Willowmere and Victoria Island afforded. Marilla offered no objections to Anne's gypsyings. The Spencervale doctor, who had come the night Minnie May had the croup, met Anne at the house of a patient one afternoon early in vacation, looked her over sharply, screwed up his mouth, shook his head, and sent a message to Marilla Cuthbert by another person. It was, Keep that red-headed girl of yours in the open air all summer, and don't let her read books until she gets more spring into her step. This message frightened Marilla wholesomely. She read Anne's death warrant by consumption in it unless it was scrupulously obeyed. As a result, Anne had the golden summer of her life as far as freedom and frolic went. She walked, rode, buried, and dreamed to her heart's content. And when September came, she was bright-eyed and alert, with a step that would have satisfied the Spencervale doctor and a heart full of ambition and zest once more. I feel just like studying with might and main, she declared as she brought her books down from the attic. Oh, you good old friends, I'm glad to see your honest faces once more. Yes, even you, geometry. I've had a perfectly beautiful summer, Marilla, and now I'm rejoicing as a strong man to run a race, as Mr. Allen said last Sunday. Oh, doesn't Mr. Allen preach magnificent sermons? Mrs. Lynde says he is improving every day, and the first thing we know, some city church will gobble him up, and then we'll be left and have to turn to and break in another green preacher. But I don't see the use of meeting trouble halfway, do you, Marilla? I think it would be better just to enjoy Mr. Allen while we have him. If I were a man, I think I'd be a minister." They can have such an influence for good, if their theology is sound, and it must be thrilling to preach splendid sermons and stir your hearers' hearts. Why can't women be ministers, Marilla? I asked Mrs. Lindat, and she was shocked and said it would be a scandalous thing. She said there might be female ministers in the States, and she believed there was, but thank goodness we hadn't got to that stage in Canada yet, and she hoped we never would. But I don't see why. I think women would make splendid ministers. When there is a social to be got up, or a church tea, or anything else to raise money, the women have to turn to and do the work." I'm sure Mrs. Lynde can pray every bit as well as Superintendent Bell, and I've no doubt she could preach, too, with a little practice. Yes, I believe she could, said Marilla dryly. She does plenty of unofficial preaching as it is. Nobody has much of a chance to go wrong in Avonlea with Rachel to oversee them. Marilla, 
said Anne in a burst of confidence. I want to tell you something and ask you what you think about it. It has worried me terribly, on Sunday afternoons, that is, when I think specially about such matters. I do, I do really want to be good. And when I'm with you or Mrs. Allen or, or Miss Stacy, I want it more than ever, and I want to do just what would please you and what you would approve of. But mostly, when I'm with Mrs. Lynde, well, I feel desperately wicked, and as if I wanted to go and do the very things she tells me I oughtn't to do. I feel irresistibly tempted to do it. Now, what do you think is the reason I feel like that? Do you think it's because I'm really bad and unregenerate? Marilla looked dubious for a moment. Then she laughed. <laughs> if you are, I guess I am too, Anne, for Rachel has often had that very effect on me. I sometimes think she'd have more of an influence for good, as you say yourself, if she didn't keep nagging people to do right. There should have been a special commandment against nagging. But there, I shouldn't talk so. Rachel is a good Christian woman, and she means well. There isn't a kinder soul in Avonlea, and she never shirks her share of work. Oh, I'm very glad you feel the same, said Anne decidedly. It's so encouraging. I shan't worry so much over that after this. But I dare say... There'll be other things to worry me. They keep coming up new all the time. Things to perplex you, you know. You settle one question and there's another right after. There are so many things to be thought over and decided when you're beginning to grow up. It keeps me busy all the time thinking them over and deciding what is right. It's a serious thing to grow up, isn't it, Marilla? But when I have such good friends as you and Matthew... And Mrs. Allen and Miss Stacy, I ought to grow up successfully, and I'm sure it will be my own fault if I don't. I feel it's a great responsibility, because I have only the one chance. If I don't grow up right, I can't go back and begin over again. I've grown two inches this summer, Marilla. Mr. Gillis measured me at Ruby's party. <laughs> I'm so glad you made my new dresses longer. That dark green one is so pretty, and it was so sweet of you to put on the flounce. Of course, I know it wasn't really necessary, but flounces are so stylish this fall, and Josie Pye has flounces on all her dresses. I know I'll be able to study better because of mine. I shall have such a comfortable feeling deep down in my mind about that flounce. It's worth something to have that, admitted Marilla. Miss Stacy came back to Avonlea School and found all her pupils eager for work once more. Especially did the Queen's class gird up their loins for the fray, for at the end of the coming year, dimly shadowing their pathway already, loomed up that fateful thing known as the Entrance at the thought of which one and all felt their hearts sink into their very shoes. Suppose they did not pass. That thought was doomed to haunt Anne through the waking hours of that winter, Sunday afternoons inclusive, 
to the almost entire exclusion of moral and theological problems. When Anne had bad dreams, she found herself staring miserably at past lists of the entrance exams, where Gilbert Blythe's name was blazoned at the top and in which hers did not appear at all. But it was a jolly, busy, happy, swift-flying winter. Schoolwork was as interesting, class rivalry as absorbing as of yore. New worlds of thought, feeling, and ambition, fresh, fascinating fields of unexplored knowledge seemed to be opening out before Anne's eager eyes. Hills peeped o'er hill, and Alps on Alps arose. Much of all this was due to Miss Stacy's tactful, careful, broad-minded guidance. She led her class to think and explore and discover for themselves and encourage straying from the old beaten paths to a degree that quite shocked Mrs. Lynde and the school trustees, who viewed all innovations on established methods rather dubiously. Apart from her studies, Anne expanded socially. For Marilla, mindful of the Spencervale doctor's dictum, no longer vetoed occasional outings. The debating club flourished and gave several concerts. There were one or two parties, almost verging on grown-up affairs. There were sleigh drives and skating frolics galore. Between times, Anne grew, shooting up so rapidly that Marilla was astonished one day when they were standing side by side to find the girl was taller than herself. Why, Anne, how you've grown, she said, almost unbelievingly. A sigh followed on the words. Marilla felt a queer regret over Anne's inches. The child she had learned to love had vanished somehow, and here was this tall, serious-eyed girl of fifteen, with the thoughtful brows and the proudly poised little head in her place. Marilla loved the girl as much as she had loved the child, but she was conscious of a queer, sorrowful sense of loss. And that night, when Anne had gone to prayer meeting with Diana, Marilla sat alone in the wintry twilight and indulged in the weakness of a cry. Matthew, coming in with a lantern, caught her at it and gazed at her in such consternation that Marilla had to laugh through her fears. I was thinking about Anne, she explained. She's got to be such a big girl, and she'll probably be away from us next winter. I'll miss her terrible. You'll be able to come home often, comforted Matthew to whom Anne was as yet, and always would be, the little eager girl he had brought home from Wright River on that June evening four years before. The branch railroad will be built to Carmody by that time. It won't be the same thing as having her here all the time, sighed Marilla gloomily, determined to enjoy her luxury of grief uncomforted. But there, men can't understand these things. There were other changes in Anne, no less real than the physical change. For one thing, she became much quieter. 
Perhaps she thought all the more, and dreamed as much as ever, but she certainly talked less. Marilla noticed and commented on this also. You don't chatter half as much as you used to, Anne, nor use half as many big words. What has come over you? Anne colored and laughed a little as she dropped her book and looked dreamily out of the window, where big, fat, red buds were bursting out on the creeper in response to the lure of the spring sunshine. I don't know. I don't want to talk as much, she said, denting her chin thoughtfully with her forefinger. It's nicer to think dear, pretty thoughts and keep them in one's heart, like treasures. I don't like to have them laughed at or, or wondered over, and somehow I don't want to use big words any more. It's almost a pity, isn't it, now that I'm really growing big enough to say them if I did want to. It's fun to be almost grown up in some ways, but it's not the kind of fun I expected, Marilla. There's so much to, to learn and, and do and, and think that there isn't time for big words. Besides, Miss Stacy says the short ones are much stronger and better. She makes us write all our essays as simply as possible. Oh, it was hard at first. I was so used to crowding in all the fine big words I could think of, and I thought of any number of them. But I've got used to it now, and I, I see it's so much better. What has become of your story club? I haven't heard you speak of it for a long time. The story club isn't in existence any longer. We hadn't time for it, and anyhow, I think we'd got tired of it. It was silly to be writing about love and murder and elopements and, and mysteries. Miss Stacy sometimes has us write a story for training in composition, but she won't let us write anything but what might happen in Avonlea in our own lives. And she criticizes it very sharply and makes us criticize our own, too. I never thought my compositions had so many faults until I began to look for them myself. I felt so ashamed I wanted to give up altogether. But Miss Stacy said I could learn to write well if only I trained myself to be my own severest critic. And so I am trying to. You've only two more months before the entrance, said Marilla. Do you think you'll be able to get through? Anne shivered. I don't know. Sometimes I think I'll be all right, and then I get horribly afraid. We studied hard, and Miss Stacy has drilled us thoroughly, but we mayn't get through for all that. We've each got a stumbling block. Well, mine is geometry, of course— and Jane's is Latin, and Ruby and Charlie's is algebra, and Josie's is arithmetic. Moody Spurgeon says he feels it in his bones that he is going to fail in English history. Miss Stacy is going to give us examinations in June just as hard as we'll have at the entrance, and mark us just as strictly, so we'll have some idea. Oh, I wish it was all over, Marilla. It haunts me. Sometimes I wake up in the night and, and wonder what I'll do if I don't pass. Why go to school next year and try again, said Marilla unconcernedly. Oh, I don't believe I'd have the heart for it. 
It would be such a disgrace to fail, especially if get, if the if the, if the others passed. And I get so nervous in an examination that I'm likely to make a mess of it. I wish I had nerves like Jane Andrews. Nothing rattles her. Anne sighed, and dragging her eyes from the witcheries of the spring world, the beckoning day of breeze and blue and the green things upspringing in the garden, buried herself resolutely in her book. There would be other springs. But if she did not succeed in passing the entrance, Anne felt convinced that she would never recover sufficiently to enjoy them. Chapter 32 The Pass List is Out With the end of June came the close of the term and the close of Miss Stacy's rule in Avonlea School. Anne and Diana walked home that evening, feeling very sober indeed. Red eyes and damp handkerchiefs bore convincing testimony to the fact that Miss Stacy's farewell words must have been quite as touching as Mr. Phillips had been under similar circumstances three years before. Diana looked back at the schoolhouse from the foot of the spruce hill and sighed deeply. Oh, it does seem as if it was the end of everything, doesn't it? She said dismally. You oughtn't to feel half as badly as I do, said Anne, hunting vainly for a dry spot on her handkerchief. You'll be back again next winter, but I suppose I've left the dear old school forever. If I have good luck, that is. It won't be a bit the same. Miss Stacy won't be there, nor you, nor Jane, nor Ruby, probably. I shall have to sit all alone, for I couldn't bear to have another deskmate after you. Oh, we have had jolly times, haven't we, Anne? It's dreadful to think they're all over. Two big tears rolled down by Diana's nose. If you would stop crying, I could, said Anne imploringly. "'Just as soon as I put away my hanky, I see you brimming up, and that starts me off again. "'As Mrs. Lynn says, if you can't be cheerful, be as cheerful as you can. "'After all, I dare say I'll be back next year. "'This is one of the times I know I'm not going to pass. "'They're getting alarmingly frequent. "'Why, you came out splendidly in the exams Miss Stacy gave. "'Yes,' But those exams didn't make me nervous. When I think of the real thing, you can't imagine what a horrid, cold, fluttery feeling comes around my heart. And then my number is 13, and Josie Pye says it's so unlucky. I am not superstitious, and I know it can make no difference. But still, I wish it wasn't 13. I do wish I was going in with you, said Diana. Wouldn't we have a perfectly elegant time? But I suppose you'll have to cram in the evenings. No, Miss Stacy has made us promise not to open a book at all. She says it would only tire and confuse us, and we are to go out walking and not think about the exams at all and go to bed early. It's good advice, but I expect it will be hard to follow. Good advice is apt to be, I think. 
Prissy Andrews told me that she sat up half the night every night of her entrance week and crammed for dear life, and I had determined to sit up at least as long as she did. It was so kind of your Aunt Josephine to ask me to stay at Beechwood while I'm in town. You'll write to me while you're in, won't you? I'll write Tuesday night and tell you how the first day goes, promised Anne. I'll be haunting the post office Wednesday, vowed Diana. Anne went to town the following Monday, and on Wednesday Diana haunted the post office as agreed and got her letter. Dearest Diana, wrote Anne, here it is, Tuesday night, and I'm writing this in the library at Beechwood. Last night, I was horribly lonesome, all alone in my room, and wished so much you were with me. I couldn't cram because I'd promised Miss Stacy not to, but it was as hard to keep from opening my history as it used to be to keep from reading a story before my lessons were learned. This morning, Miss Stacy came for me, and we went to the academy, calling for Jane and Ruby and Josie on our way. Ruby asked me to feel her hands, and they were as cold as ice. Josie said I looked as if I hadn't slept a wink, and she didn't believe I was strong enough to stand the grind of the teacher's course, even if I did get through. There are times and seasons, even yet, when I don't feel that I've made any great headway in learning to like Josie Pye. When we reached the academy... There were scores of students there from all over the island. The first person we saw was Moody Spurgeon, sitting on the steps and muttering away to himself. Jane asked him what on earth he was doing, and he said he was repeating the multiplication table over and over to steady his nerves, and for pity's sake not to interrupt him, because if he stopped for a moment he got frightened and forgot everything he ever knew. But the multiplication table kept all his facts firmly in their proper place. When we were assigned to our rooms, Miss Stacy had to leave us. Jane and I sat together, and Jane was so composed that I envied her. No need of the multiplication table for good, steady, sensible Jane. I wondered if I looked as I felt, and if they could hear my heart thumping clear across the room. Then, a man came in and began distributing the English examination sheets. My hands grew cold then, and my head fairly whirled around as I picked it up. Just one awful moment, Diana. I felt exactly as I did four years ago when I asked Marilla if I might stay at Green Gables. And then everything cleared up in my mind, and my heart began beating again. I forgot to say that it had stopped altogether, for I knew I could do something with that paper anyhow. At noon, we went home for dinner, and then back again for history in the afternoon. The history was a pretty hard paper, and I got dreadfully mixed up in the dates. Still, I think I did fairly well today. But, oh, Diana, tomorrow the geometry exam comes off, and when I think of it, it takes every bit of determination I possess to keep from opening my Euclid. If I thought the multiplication table would help me any, I would recite it from now till tomorrow morning. 
I went down to see the other girls this evening. On my way, I met Moody Spurgeon, wandering distractedly around. He said he knew he had failed in history, and he was born to be a disappointment to his parents, and he was going home on the morning train, and it would be easier to be a carpenter than a minister anyhow. Well, I cheered him up and persuaded him to stay to the end, because it would be unfair to Miss Stacy if he didn't. Sometimes I have wished I was born a boy, but when I see Moody Spurgeon, I'm always glad I'm a girl and not his sister. Ruby was in hysterics when I reached their boarding house. She had just discovered a fearful mistake she had made in her English paper. When she recovered, we went to uptown and had an ice cream. Oh, how we wished you had been with us. Oh, Diana, if only the geometry examination were over. But there, as Mrs. Lynde would say, the sun will go on rising and setting whether I fail in geometry or not. That is true, but not especially comforting. I think I'd rather it didn't go on if I failed. Yours devotedly, Anne. The geometry examination and all the others were over in due time, and Anne arrived home on Friday evening, rather tired, but with an air of chastened triumph about her. Diana was over at Green Gables when she arrived, and they met as if they had been parted for years. "'You old darling, it's perfectly splendid to see you back again. "'It seems like an age since you went to town. "'And, oh, Anne, how did you get along?' "'Pretty well, I think, in everything but the geometry. "'I don't know whether I passed in it or not, "'and I have a creepy, crawly presentiment that I didn't. "'Oh, how good it is to be back!' Green Gables is the dearest, loveliest spot in the world. How did the others do? The girls say they know they didn't pass, but I think they did pretty well. Josie says the geometry was so easy a child of ten could do it. Moody Spurgeon still thinks he failed in history, and Charlie says he failed in algebra. But we don't really know anything about it, and won't until the pass list is out. That won't be for a fortnight. Fancy living a fortnight in such suspense. Oh, I wish I could go to sleep and never wake up until it is over. Diana knew it would be useless to ask how Gilbert Blythe had fared, so she merely said, Oh, you'll pass all right. Don't worry. I'd rather not pass at all than not come out pretty well up on the list, flashed Anne, by which she meant, and Diana knew she meant, that success would be incomplete and bitter if she did not come out ahead of Gilbert Blythe. With this end in view, Anne had strained every nerve during the examinations. So had Gilbert. They had met and passed each other on the street a dozen times without any sign of recognition, and every time Anne had held her head a little higher and wished a little more earnestly that she had made friends with Gilbert when he asked her, and vowed a little more determinedly to surpass him in the examination. She knew that all Avonlea Junior was wondering which would come out first. 
She even knew that Jimmy Glover and Ned Wright had a bet on the question, and that Josie Pye had said there was no doubt in the world that Gilbert would be first, and she felt that her humiliation would be unbearable if she failed. But she had another and nobler motive for wishing to do well. She wanted to pass high for the sake of Matthew and Marilla, especially Matthew. Matthew had declared to her his conviction that she would beat the whole island. That, Anne felt, was something it would be foolish to hope for, even in the wildest dreams. But she did hope fervently that she would be among the first ten at least, so that she might see Matthew's kindly brown eyes gleam with pride in her achievement. That, she felt, would be a sweet reward indeed for all her hard work and patient grubbing among unimaginative equations and conjugations. At the end of the fortnight, Anne took to haunting the post office also, in the distracted company of Jane, Ruby, and Josie, opening the Charlottetown dailies with shaking hands and cold, sink-away feelings as bad as any experience during the entrance week. Charlie and Gilbert were not above doing this too, but Moody Spurgeon stayed resolutely away. "'I haven't got the grit to go there and look at a paper in cold blood.' he told Anne. I'm just going to wait until somebody comes and tells me suddenly whether I've passed or not. When three weeks had gone by without the past list appearing, Anne began to feel that she really couldn't stand the strain much longer. Her appetite failed, and her interest in Avonlea doings languished. Mrs. Lynde wanted to know what else you could expect with a Tory superintendent of education at the head of affairs, and Matthew, noting Anne's paleness and indifference and the lagging steps that bore her home from the post office every afternoon, began seriously to wonder if he hadn't better vote grit at the next election. But one evening, the news came. Anne was sitting at her open window, for the time forgetful of the woes of examinations and the cares of the world, as she drank in the beauty of the summer dusk, sweet-scented with flower-breaths from the garden below, and sibilant and rustling from the stir of poplars. The eastern sky above the firs was flushed faintly pink from the reflection of the west, and Anne was wondering dreamily if the spirit of color looked like that. When she saw Diana come flying down through the firs, over the log bridge, and up the slope with a fluttering newspaper in her hand, Anne sprang to her feet, knowing at once what that paper contained. The pass list was out. Her head whirled, and her heart beat until it hurt her. She could not move a step. It seemed an hour to her before Diana came rushing along the hall and burst into the room without even knocking, so great was her excitement. Anne, you've passed, she cried. Passed the very first. You and Gilbert both. Your ties. But your name is first. Oh, I'm so proud. Diana flung the paper on the table and herself on Anne's bed.
utterly breathless and incapable of further speech. Anne lighted the lamp, oversetting the match-safe and using up half a dozen matches before her shaking hands could accomplish the task. Then she snatched up the paper. Yes, she had passed. There was her name at the very top of a list of two hundred. That moment was worth living for. You did just splendidly, Anne, puffed Diana, recovering sufficiently to sit up and speak, for Anne, starry-eyed and rapt, had not uttered a word. "'Father brought the paper home from Bright River not ten minutes ago. "'It came out on the afternoon train, you know, "'and won't be here till tomorrow by mail. "'And when I saw the past list, I just rushed over like a wild thing. "'You've all passed, every one of you, Moody Spurgeon and all, "'though he's conditioned in history. "'Jane and Ruby did pretty well. "'They're halfway up, and so did Charlie.' "'Josie just scraped through with three marks to spare, "'but you'll see she'll put on as many airs as if she'd led. "'Oh, won't Miss Stacy be delighted? "'Oh, Anne, what does it feel like to see your name "'at the head of a pass list like that? "'If it were me, I know I'd go crazy with joy. "'I'm pretty near crazy as it is, "'but you're as calm and cool as a spring evening.' I'm just dazzled inside, said Anne. I want to say a, a hundred things, and I can't find words to say them in. I never dreamed of this. Well, yes, I did, too. Just once. I let myself think. Once. What if I should come out first? Quakingly, you know, for it seemed so vain and presumptuous to think I could lead the island. Oh, excuse me a minute, Diana. I must run right out to the field to tell Matthew. Then we'll go up the road and tell the good news to the others. They hurried to the hayfield below the barn, where Matthew was coiling hay. And as luck would have it, Mrs. Lynde was talking to Marilla at the lane fence. Oh, Matthew, exclaimed Anne, I've passed, and I'm first, or one of the first. I am not vain, but... I I'm thankful. Well, now, I always said it, said Matthew, gazing at the pass list delightedly. I knew you could beat them all. Easy. You've done pretty well, I must say, Anne, said Marilla, trying to hide her extreme pride in Anne from Mrs. Rachel's critical eye. But that good soul said heartily, I just guess she has done well. "'and far be it from me to be backward in saying it. "'You're a credit to your friends, Anne, that's what, "'and we're all proud of you.' "'That night, Anne, who had wound up the delightful evening "'with a serious little talk with Mrs. Allen at the manse, "'knelt sweetly by her open window "'in a great sheen of moonshine, "'and murmured a prayer of gratitude and aspiration.' that came straight from her heart. There was in it thankfulness for the past and reverent petition for the future. And when she slept on her white pillow, her dreams were as fair and bright and beautiful as maidenhood might desire.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Marilyn Lightstone Reads Anne of Green Gables. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Zneimer. This is our third book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast. We invite you to go back and listen to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Jane Eyre and Marilyn Lightstone Reads A Christmas Carol if you haven't already. You can help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in the iTunes and Android podcast stores. While you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.